Welcome to our first ever Cows on the Planet podcast. The intent of this series of podcasts is to explore the science of beef production, beef, and impacts of cattle on the environment. My name is Kim Stanford, and I will be doing a good chunk of the hosting. I am a senior, which is another way to say old, beef researcher at the University of Lethbridge. I know a bit about some beef-related issues, but will enjoy learning from our guests as we go along. My frequent co-host is Dr. Tim McAllister, and I'll let him introduce himself. Thanks a lot, Kim. Yeah, I'm Tim McAllister. I'm a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. I'm located in Lethbridge, Alberta, the area that's got the highest cattle population in Canada. We research in a number of different areas, and I'm looking forward to contributing to the podcast. Tim will also be serving as, I call it, the wise old fart, the guy who kind of takes the, the nuts and bolts of the podcast and distills it into some fantastic sound bites that everyone can remember. Our other co-host is Dr. Kim Ominski of the University of Manitoba, who will join us from time to time when her schedule permits. Kim is the director for the National Center for Livestock and the Environment. Besides having a very active research program, teaching 15 courses, and getting by on a lot less sleep per night than I need. So let's dive in. Tim, I've heard that some people believe that keeping cattle in a feedlot is cruel. As a beef researcher and the wise old fart, what do you think of this as a topic for our podcast? Yeah, I think it's a good topic, Kim, because I think a lot of people do think that confinement feeding of cattle is cruel. I think mainly because it's such a different environment from what they have when they see cattle out, you know, grazing the open range. But really, you know, when, when we look at what constitutes cruel, it really is the level of discomfort that those animals are experiencing while they're in that environment. And when we look at a feedlot environment, you know, there's fences up to break the wind and reduce the level of coldness that the animals would be exposed to. There's feed that's continuously provided to them. There's a lot of things that are actually less stressful in that environment than what there would be out in the open range. So it's really a matter of looking at each production system and then making an assessment as to whether the management practices are constituting generating stressful conditions and then taking mitigation strategies that are possible to mitigate those stressors from happening. I've heard a few times that intensive agriculture is cruel to livestock and I thought it might be a good idea to talk to an expert on beef cattle welfare. Our guest for today is Dr. Karen Schwarzkopf Genschwein, a senior scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, studying beef cattle physiology and welfare. Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Karen. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me today. I'm I'm thankful to have the opportunity to to let people know about our agricultural systems and in particular the feedlot system. So, Karen, I, I think you were one of the first beef welfare scientists appointed in Canada. I think there's quite a few welfare scientists now. Why were you amongst the first, and was it easy being a pioneer? <laughs> That's a really great question, Tim. Yeah, I can't believe it's been 25 years now since I, I got my PhD in 1996. And at the time, I remember I was working at the research Lethbridge Research Station as a technician, and I just started reading more and more. I took a class on animal behavior. And then it just really intrigued me about managing animals in a different way, in a, in a better way, in a more humane way. And so 
I started looking around and lo and behold, the University of Saskatchewan had just hired the first behavior welfare person. That was Dr. Joe Stuckey. And he was taking students and I contacted him and yeah, the rest is history. I did my PhD on branding pain and how, how painful the different types of degrees and hot branding were. And really since that time, initially we could only get projects aimed at improving production efficiency because of welfare, not for the sake of welfare itself, like that you're improving, you know, humane management of the animal. So in that way, over the years, over this 25 year span, it used to be that I applied for grants and I, I really couldn't get anything if you had the word, word welfare in it, because I think people were scared of it. They, they saw it as more of an animal rights thing rather than humane management. And uh, yeah, I didn't get m many grants funded. And now I can say that we have been very successful in getting money. Most of that money has been from the beef industry themselves because they recognize that it's part of sustainable management. So was it a priority area when you started out? For the beef industry? Yeah. I would say no, just because of the amount of times I applied for funding and the amount of times things were rejected because they just really didn't see that. They thought welfare was a flash in the pan. It wouldn't last. You know, it was just something like a, a hot topic that would go away. And they just never thought it would be part of their, you know, impinge on their management mm -hmm. in any way or didn't really understand the relationship between the role welfare plays and production, uh, they go hand in hand. So it is a priority area now, I think. Very much so. You look on any sustainable, like the, the global round table on sustainable beef has it as a top priority in, in any, not just beef, but livestock production. Why the turnaround? Why did it come from something that was considered a relatively low priority to being one of the top priorities? Yeah, well, it comes down to consumer buying and what they perceive as, you know, what they want out of their products and how they're raised. And so if you're going to sell your product and, you know, have claims of good management and humane management, then you have to live by those words. And I think people are looking to to know that their food is being raised in a certain way. And that puts pressure like yeah. from the retailer on down. So it sounds like the industry is listening to the consumer then and taking an area that previously yes, was not very, seen as a priority very much and, and so. made it a priority. Okay. Yes. And, and that's not the only thing. I think there's just more vigilance from the producers and understanding that, I mean, many of them understand and want to treat their animals in a certain way. And so, and so they do. In the past, it's clear with the industry with regard to the impact that welfare can have on overall performance and profitability and I'm I'm not sure that connection was as strong, you know, 20 years ago as it is today. That's right. There was not very much understanding. Well, there weren't many studies done looking, you know, making the assessment. If you change this in your management, how much better would the production be? Um, it particularly if it was like a welfare-related issue. And I have to say, improved welfare doesn't always mean better production. Castration is one of those examples. So if you give your animals pain mitigation for castration. In all of the studies that we did over a 10-year period, we never saw any increase in production because of the application of analgesics and anesthetics. It needs to be done because it's the right thing to do for the animal, not because it provided more production or average daily gain or weight gain for those calves. So it doesn't always mean that, you know, you get improved production efficiencies, but I would say overall in general, it, it generally does, but not always.
So probably, as some listeners may not know, could you describe what intensive agriculture and a feedlot is? Sure. So a feedlot is an intensive feeding operation. Some people call it a confined feeding operation where cattle, typically calves between five to eight months of age and yearlings um, off pasture are transported off the ranch and they come to the feedlot facility and here they're grown and fattened for slaughter and then their meat can be sold to retailers. So McDonald's, Wendy's and all the grocery distribution uh, places that we know. The calves are usually fed for about 200 days and the yearlings for about half of that time and they are housed in pens, outdoor pens typically, uh, mostly in the West. And those pens can have anywhere from 200 to 300 head of animals in them. A feedlot can range in size from either 50 to 100 animals and all the way up to 100,000 head of cattle can be in one uh, confined operation. The main reason why we feed cattle this way is because it's it's the most efficient way to raise cattle and we can grow them and fatten them quickly. A key factor for the success of these operations is really careful management so that we can minimize animal health and welfare issues. And it goes without saying that poor management in this system could lead to significant welfare issues if not managed properly. Karen, one question I would have is that when you look at a feedlot itself, you know, it looks like a very different environment than what would typically envision cattle being out on the open range, you know, grazing grasslands and that. It seems to be extremely different from what we would say cattle originally evolved, the type of environment. Doesn't that pose some serious problems? So, of course, it's a different environment. When they are in those confined feeding operations, they may be much more limited in space. Um, compared to when they are on pasture, they may have more exposure to disease because they're in confinement and the disease can spread more quickly between individuals. But I have to remind people that although the systems look very different, when we look at the pasture system that we all have a vision of, of where our, our cattle should be raised, we have to keep in mind that in those pasture settings, Painful procedures are still conducted on cattle. So things like castration, dehorning, spaying, that kind of thing. Cattle on pasture still succumb to disease and they are more exposed to predation than they would be in our confined systems. They are more exposed to extreme weather conditions. They have the potential to lose weight or not do well because the pasture environment might not be optimal or during drought conditions, um, animals might not have as much feed as they need and they could have limited water availability. Um, so the other thing is producers don't have the same opportunity to monitor those cattle in the same way as they could be monitored in the uh, confined system. So each system has its challenges and really it comes down to making sure that the management is appropriate for the system that you're using. So Karen, if there's a painful process or procedures that have to be done in feedlots, like why do these have to be done? If they're painful, why cause stress to the cattle? Why do some of these procedures, like just leave the cattle alone? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, Kim, and I, and I often get it. So I just want to start by saying that 
I want people to know that veterinarians and animal scientists recommend that these painful procedures be done as soon in life as possible. So this means that they should be done before those cattle get to the feedlot. That's the recommendation currently. And this means that those procedures should be done on the ranch when the calf is still with its mother. And depending on the procedure, those procedures should be best conducted between one week of age and up to three months of age. It can vary depending on whether it's castration, dehorning, um, whatever the procedure is. All of those procedures and the various ways in which we can conduct them are known to cause pain regardless of the age in which they're done. So in that circumstance, pain mitigation or pain control drugs are always recommended. And it is recommended that the producers work with their veterinarians to make sure they have the best uh, plan according plan for pain control and pain mitigation in their animals. And we know that the younger these procedures are performed, the faster the healing and recovery process and the lower the risk of complications. So that's why these procedures really need to be done prior to entering the feedlot Castration and, sp and spaying are still done to stop unwanted breeding. It reduces aggression towards other cattle and humans, and it helps to also improve meat quality. Sometimes these procedures are not done on the ranch for whatever reason. The chores haven't been done in an appropriate time, and the animals are sold to the feedlot, and then they arrive at the feedlot without being castrated or spayed, and it is at that time that they are done. And we have to realize that at this time that they are six months of age or older. And we know that pain is more severe, complications are more severe when they're older. So certainly um, it is recommended to do the procedure before they arrive at the feedlot. And if they do arrive that way, that procedure must be done with pain control. And under the new codes of practice, the recommendations and the, the CVMA, it is a requirement that calves be given pain control once they're six months of age and older. Two procedures, other procedures we often hear about, Karen, is uh, dehorning and branding. Why are those procedures carried out with calves? Yeah, so for dehorning, much as with the castration, when we handle cattle or when we put them on a truck, when they're in the pens, and those animals have may have some aggressive interactions with one another, the horns can be used in aggression towards another animal, and this can cause bruising. And so it is a problem from both the animal welfare perspective for causing pain when the, when the animals can use their horns on another animal. And when they get close to slaughter and they're shipped together, it can cause bruising, carcass bruising, which we, which we don't want also branding. So branding is still a way that the industry identifies animals within their herd. And it is known to be very painful. It can cause a, a second and third degree burn. And so we know those procedures also can be done with some pain mitigation. It's a requirement after six months of age. And for branding, there's no age given, but you could give uh, topical lidocaine or use an analgesic after the procedure is done, but it's still used to identify animals within a herd. And so that's to make sure that it reduces cattle wrestling, which is still a thing that can happen. And often cattle can escape from their 
their pens or their ranch. And so it's a way of identifying the owner's animals. Use of pain mitigation, that hasn't always been done. Like back in the days when I was on my family farm, we, we never used any pain mitigation. How recently has this been introduced? Yeah, we've known for quite some time that pain controlled drugs or mitigation, it it works. It, it works and we know it works. That The main reason it was adopted in the past was because only anesthetics were available. Well, we have new approved analgesics for use in cattle in Canada. I think they're lagging a little bit behind in the U.S., but we have, for example, products that contain meloxicam. So there are several products now that are available and registered in Canada for use as an analgesic. And the other part about analgesics is you can give an analgesic, but it's really how long is it effective. And so the drug that we have now, Medicam, meloxicam, it can last up to two to three days after you administer it. So that's also a huge bonus in terms of mitigating post-operative pain, and that wasn't available prior to that. So other analgesics had a half-life much shorter than that, like several hours or a day, but this product has really been very useful for the beef industry or any livestock industry and where you don't want to handle the animals as often because that's also a stressor. So we're looking for ways that are more convenient for the producers to apply these these pain-controlled drugs. The other thing that it's really come in the public eye, uh, there's been lots of comments and, and concern from the public to reduce pain in our in our farm animals. We do it in our cats and dogs, our pets, um, and there's strong advocacy for that to also happen in our livestock. And so there's more and more pressure to make sure that these, these animals under our care are managed in the, the best way possible and the most animal welfare friendly way possible. And that means providing them with pain control for painful procedures and combination of the codes of practice advocate for that, the veterinary practices advocate for that. And this is something that will become commonplace, part of our social license to raise animals. Karen, I think you made an interesting point. Like when we talk about castration or Spain, you know, we use a lot of those same procedures on our pets and that to prevent uh, unrestricted breeding. So I I guess it makes sense that we have a similar approach that we use with cattle. Yes, that's right. In my mind, I don't think we can justify not using these, these types of drugs for our, all animals under our care. Animal cattle can feel pain just as, as cats and dogs do and any other animal. They have very similar physiology in terms of the mechanism of pain response and how it, how it can affect them negatively and affect their welfare negatively. So it's really, I think, important that the producers and that care for these animals recognize this and now it becomes part of their, their daily management and needs to be part of it. And when these meat products get sold, beef products get sold, consumers can be assured that these animals were cared for in the most humane way possible. Back to feedlots, Karen. The cattle are closely like housed, housed in confinement. They, they can't get away from each other. What would be the number one, in your opinion, the number one welfare concern for cattle that are housed in feedlots? I, I have the top three ones that I believe are, are the biggest welfare concerns. If, 
if not managed. And we've already talked about one and that was pain management. And we have to remember that pain management shouldn't be only employed for the routine management procedures that we do like castration and spaying and deporting, but also in during times when the animals have injury or surgery or even disease or illness like lameness. Lameness can be highly painful in, in, in cattle. And so to recognize where animals are experiencing pain and to mitigate it, no matter what, what it is, whether it's something that we cause to happen or whether it's something that, that happens you know, in the day-to-day -day life of an animal in the feedlot. The other thing is a huge factor here is the timely and effective treatment of illness. And if the prognosis is poor, then that relates to timely euthanasia. So we have to be very vigilant of that. We have to be constantly monitoring those animals because like I said earlier, when they are in confinement and uh, diseases can spread more quickly and more easily when they are in a, in a confined space and can't maybe escape, you know, getting out of the mud if it's, if it's during a, a wet or rainy period or it's a, after a large snow, snow melt, those pens can become very muddy and cause, you know, conditions in which pathogens can spread more easily or when they first come into the feedlot and they, they can pass, for example, they have a condition called bovine respiratory disease which is easily passed from animal to animal, and particularly when they're sharing water bowl and, and feed bunk and things like that. So again, timely and effective treatment of illness is a very big part of feedlot management day to day, and then recognizing when an animal must be put down humanely. The last point about kind of the top three welfare concerns, I would say for the feedlot is the feed and the pen management. And I think you're going to likely have, a, you can have a whole other podcast on feed and feed management and how that can affect animal welfare and then related to the pen. So again, how many animals you put in that pen, the, the greater numbers of animals, the, the less space for lying, um, the more competition at the feed bunk, the more possibility, as I said, of spreading disease, the more difficult it is even to pick out sick animals. So when animals are you know, they can include another animal, it's difficult to see, you can't move them to, to actually assess how, how healthy that group of cattle are. So there are, are issues with um, confinement in pens where a stocking density can be high. And so we have to be very vigilant about those things. And feeding is a very important part. That's why they're there to put on weight very quickly feeding uh, high energy diets and, and green diets have their own unique uh, impacts on animal welfare. So animals feeding these high grade diets can have digestive disorders, uh, which can cause uh, lots of pro health problems for the animals. And so these are things that have to be managed very carefully. Karen, we've heard that digestive disturbances can be a problem in the feedlot, but how can disturbances like bloat and acidosis be better controlled? Yeah, it's one of the major welfare concerns, I would say. And there are several different ways we can help to control that. So one of the biggest ones is the transition diet. And how do they work? Just to change the diet a little bit at a time? Or what, what is a transition diet? That's right. So really, it means that the slow, gradual step up from a high forage diet 
to a high grain diet. And so the, the more gradually you can do that, and I mean, it really does depend on the individual, but overall, the, the more gradual that transition can take place, the better it is for the animal. Karen, when you, when you say they're in, you know, confinement, like maybe we could make the same analogy. Like when people move into cities, there's an increased density of people and opportunity for disease transmission there as well. And I know for some of us, if anybody's been to Japan and rode on the Japan subway, the confinement can get pretty intense there at times. Isn't it really all about immunity? Like cows are exposed to various bacteria and pathogens all the time. What do we do to try to basically booster the immunity of of those animals so that they're not susceptible to disease when they enter those environments? Right. So just as in humans, anytime we're stressed, we we know that stress reduces our immunity, right? We have, you get stressed. We've all been in a example as a student. You're a student, you have lots of exams, you're really stressed. And after that, you know, you're done your exams, you, you get sick because the stress and, and hormones related to stress have a negative effect on your immune system. So that also happens with cattle. So any time we can reduce the stress on those cattle in any way. So what are the, the common stressors of feedlot cattle? They can be, as you said, the, the confinement, the lack of space, the lack of ability to gain access to feed or water appropriately, the lack of ability to get out of the the sun if it's a really hot day. Most feedlots don't have shelter where the animals can go in the shade. And so we can try and make anything that we can do to make those animals more comfortable, less uh, susceptible to getting disease. And often that has to do with the pre-management of those animals. So really, we know that the first 30 days in the feedlot is a time when animals become usually we see a lot of mortality and morbidity in that period of time. And that is because all of the stressors that they have to go through to actually get to the feedlot. So we talked about some of them already. Before the animals come to the feedlot, they they go through many stressful procedures. So they're weaned from their their mother. Um, That's a huge stressor to the calf. It's removal of, you know, that kind of uh, bond between the mother and the calf removal of its ability to suckle, and then they have to change to a a, a solid diet. They're transported, so transport is is a known stressor to cattle. They they might be offloaded in an auction market and mixed with other animals, and so the possibility of of being exposed to pathogens, bad pathogens are there. They might be handled poorly during those times. They can be castrated uh, and dehorned and they may or may not have had pain control. So when you add all of those things together, that, that, that time in their life prior to going to the feedlot is, is a very stressful time. And that's why we do see this huge increase in bovine respiratory disease when they first come into the feedlot. So management of those things. So there's something that's old practice and it hasn't been fully adopted. Uh, we know it works. It's called preconditioning. And, and that simply means doing those procedures that I've mentioned in so many days, usually 35 to 40 days prior to being shipped to the feedlot, so that you're trying to remove all of the stress at once. We do know that stress is additive. So if you if you castrate and then you dehorn and then you transport, these stresses are all additive to the animal. So you want to reduce 
that kind of additive effect. And so you might choose to castrate and dehorn at this period of time. They can be vaccinated so many days before they get on the truck. And so not all of those things are happening right before they're transported or they're not weaned right before they're transported. So again, reducing the amount and the number of stressors at one time. We've got a whole bunch of information, Karen. So I'd just like to know, based on all of your welfare knowledge, would you consider being housed in a feedlot cruel to cattle from an overall welfare perspective? That's a good question, Kim. So I'll repeat something I said earlier. Poor management can lead to poor welfare. And this is true regardless of the rearing system. So cattle raised on pasture still undergo, as I mentioned earlier, painful management procedures, disease, predation, extreme weather, potential for poor feed and feed quality, all of those things. Reduce monitoring and treating by the producers that care for them because in an extensive situation on a ranch, some ranches are thousands of acres and you know some have very rough terrain and it's almost impossible to monitor those cattle where they go at all periods of time. And this means that those cattle you know, may not be treated in a timely way and they have potential to, to suffer and die because of that lack of treatment. So each system has its challenges. The feedlot has its challenges in terms of confinement and spread of disease managing pen conditions and feeding, all of those things contribute to animal stress. And so we just really need to know and understand what those stressors are and how to manage them accordingly. Ultimately, it's not the system that dictates animal welfare, but the informed management of the cattle within those systems. And I would say in general, the more intensive the system, the more intensive the management needs to be so the welfare is optimal. But regardless of the system, every effort should be made to meet the five freedoms of those cattle. And the five freedoms we know to be freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from pain and injury and disease, freedom from distress, freedom to express behavior and promote well-being, and freedom from discomfort. Those sound like good freedoms for everyone. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> Karen, obviously there's a, there's quite a few welfare issues here, but I, I understand the industry, you know, is developing solutions and ways to deal with those. Yeah, that, that's right, Tim. So, you know, you can see that there are many challenges, but the industry over the years, and, and we learn every year, there's more information that comes out about how to manage better, but we can do things like low stress weaning. So two-stage weaning. So some producers now use the, the nose flap that allows the calf to stay with their mother but not suckle. So that's a kind of a, a more gentle way of weaning. So you're not removing the physical presence of the cow and your nutritional source, which is the milk for the calf all at the same time. So that helps to reduce stress. So that kind of nose flap, the calves are vaccinated before they're transported. There are very strict guidelines that the producers have put in place about what animals can even go on a, a transport um, vehicle. So being hauled on a trailer, they have to be in good physical condition. You have to do the assessment of your animals before they go on the trailer. You try and make sure that all of these procedures don't get done at the same time. So it might not follow the strict definition of preconditioning as it, as it was written many years ago, but even if, if you choose not to do them all at the same time and 
all immediately before they're transported. Those things can help. So the preconditioning, can you just give us a little bit more information about like what is preconditioning? Yeah, so preconditioning is you're, you're preparing the animals to be marketed or moved off the ranch to shipped to a, a, another location where they're grown. And so in, in order to prepare them for that, you have to do several things. So they have to be weaned, they have to be castrated. So those painful procedures that I talked about before, they may undergo castration, be horning if they have horns, they may be spayed if they're heifers. So they're identified using branding. So that could be another potential stressor. They have to be even moved from a certain part on the ranch to kind of gathered up together so that they can be shipped. So they're handled more. They have to be vaccinated all at the same time. So all of those things need to happen prior to being shipped. So what you don't want to do and what preconditioning stops is that all of those things get done at exactly the same time to cause a major stress. These stresses are additive. So for each stressor you do to the calf, it just adds a greater amount of stress. So you want to remove that Preconditioning says you have to wean your calves at least 45 days prior to transport. Same thing with vaccination. They have to be done a certain number of days prior to being shipped. So that prepares them so that they have lower stress levels before they're actually shipped. Transport itself is a stressor, so it's something else you're adding on. So even to make sure that you're transporting them in decent weather, that the animals that go on the trailer are in good condition, and that if they don't have to go through an auction market and you can market directly to a feedlot, those are all things that will help and are considered preconditioning. So it really sounds like it's all about managing stress. That's right, really. That's what a producer's main job is in getting these calves prepared to market is, is that you're at every step, no matter what you're doing, you try and reduce the stress on those calves as much as possible. And again, part of that is not doing them all at the same time. Thanks for joining us, Karen. If our listeners want any more information, what's the best way to contact you or find out more about your work? Yeah, sure, Kim. So the best way is on my Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada email account, which is karen, K-A-R-E-N dot genswine, G-E-N-S-W-E-I-N at A-G-R dot G-C dot C-A. Thank you so much, Dr. Schwartzkopf. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks a lot, Karen, for that great information in that podcast. So it really looks like it's all about managing stress. That's really what we're talking about here. And we all experience stress and we take methods to try to deal with those stressful situations. Generally, though, we never reduce that stress level to zero. And I was really interested with Karen summing up with those five freedoms because I'm involved with some work that's going on in the United Nations now and and they have what they call 19 sustainability goals that need to be put in place basically for food security and to meet the future food needs of humanity. That's what those 19 goals are, are. And five of the freedoms that she listed there would be pretty much identical to five of those that are within those 19 that were developed by a huge international panel by the United Nations. So it's interesting that we see commonality in the practices and the objectives that we have both in livestock production systems and for humanity as a whole.
So if it's good for cattle, it's good for people too, is what you're saying, Tim. Yeah, many, many of these factors are. Yeah, I think we can use a lot of analogies to compare ourselves and, and how we feel. You know, animals respond in a similar manner. We're looking forward to everybody coming back to our next podcast. We'll be talking about fat and beef and we'll be covering exciting topics like is there really a link between coronary heart disease and the consumption of red meat? Why it's much easier to produce omega-3 eggs than it is to produce omega-3 beef? And are all trans fatty acids bad or is there some good trans fatty acids that are kind of unique to beef as well? We'll be having Dr. Mike Dugan joining us for that podcast and potentially also another guest out of University of Davis, California, if we can get time to have him join us. So we look forward to the next one. That'll be coming up shortly. So thank you for listening to our podcast. Just have to give a few words to our sponsors. As researchers, we can't do much without funding. Sponsors for these podcasts are the Beef Cattle Research Council, Canada Beef, and the University of Lethbridge. Nothing we are talking about represents the views of these organizations. We're just looking for the honest opinion of other scientists, farmers, or experts in the areas we are discussing. In addition to our sponsors, we need to thank our production team. Carter Potts is our audio engineer and developer of our theme music. Allison McNaughton is my jack-of-all-trades research technician, ably assisted by summer student Uvi Abiscaria, and they'll be establishing our social media sites. Casper Allenby is the social media guru at the University of Lethbridge, helping to get the word out about the podcasts. To find us, you can check us out on Instagram. Our handle is Cows on the Planet. Facebook page, also Cows on the Planet, or Twitter. Handle is at planet underscore cows. Thanks for listening.